Father, it is your goodness that brings us here. Father, if it was just an assembly based on your holiness or your righteousness, your judgment, there would be a different spirit in the room, a different attitude, a different tenor to the songs that we sing. Songs of desperation, songs of fear, songs of separateness, because it is your holiness that that causes us to bend our knees and reflect on our incapacity. But Father, it's your goodness that causes us to stand and sing out loud and worship and raise our hands because you have brought us near. Because you have been good. And not just, not just in the moral purity sense. Father, we know and we worship you for your goodness. We worship you for the the truth that you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. You are never changing. You are always pure, righteous, and good. You never sin. You never fail. You never let anyone down. So, Father, we worship you for your goodness. But we specifically draw near of your specific goodness to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of the only God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their ways were evil. So God, we come as an assembly in the light for the sake of your goodness your moral purity, your general goodness from all time, but also, God, your specific goodness to us, that you specifically loved us, that, Jesus, you specifically came to earth to save us, to die for our sins, he who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we would be welcomed into the light. And Father, Spirit, Son, we worship you this morning. God, we'll open the word, the, your words in a few minutes. But as we rest in this moment, Father, tune our hearts, prepare our hearts to hear from you. Because, God, we want you to speak. We want you, Father, to, to have the center stage. We want you to speak. And, God, we remember today, your specific goodness to us, your guarantee of eternity, and we remember how badly we need your hope, your provision, and your presence. We remember those in our midst that that have great need, that enter into the room with pain and heartbreak, grief and loss. Father, this very week we've lost two beloved men from our congregation who have entered into your presence. 
And God, we praise you for the life of the righteous, the life of the faithful who is redeemed by you and not condemned, but, re- but brought into the light by your goodness and your love. So Father, I praise you for the memory and the legacy of Pete Wilson, the impact he left on this church, this family, and this community. Father, comfort those that grieve and encourage all of us to reflect on our own eternity, on the fragility of our own lives that we might live in light of who you are. And Father, too, I remember the life, legacy, and love of Russ Bowes as he served you and he finished his race this week as well. Father, comfort those who grieve. Comfort the families, comfort the loved ones. Father, may you bring honor and glory to yourself through lives that have been lost that pointed the way to you because we can praise you and hope knowing that these two men have entered into your presence. So God, as we open your word and we look at what Jesus, you say to those that are searching and questioning, Father, open our hearts to receive the truth. God, will you speak today to an assembly of people who are distracted, who have have varying interests that get in the way of you, who are weary and tired, and who are hurting. Speak to our hearts and minds. Encourage us with the truth from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's dismiss the kids. Their time of worship upstairs. Uh, That's fifth grade and younger. You guys can head out to the lobby, meet your teachers out there, and head upstairs. Um, Elementary school is in the back building. Uh, The younger kids are here in this building upstairs. Parents, please pick them up at the end of the service. A few things going on in the life of the church to be aware of. This is a holiday weekend, and so uh, tonight there's no uh, regular lifted uh, student ministry tonight, Um, so uh, you should have received that communication from AJ, but also so you know, there is, uh, the youth have a trip coming up in a couple of weekends, and that is called the Ignite Weekend. Um, You can ask AJ for more details, um, and uh, I think he sent uh, parents uh, an email with some information on that, but remember that, that we need to sign up for that soon. Um, not this week, but next week, starts our Better Man, um, two uh, groups of Better Man. And uh, we have had a good number of people already sign up for that, so thank you for that. It is not too late to sign up for that. Um, Even if you decide the day of to come, please, please come. We'd love for you to be a part of that. That's two different sessions, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Um, And we've got, I think, 10 or 12 guys in each session right now. So it's going to be fruitful. It's going to be good discussion. There will be video. There will be discussion. There will be lots of scripture um, pointing us towards maturity in Christ. Um, Guys, we'd love for any of you to be there. If you've had questions about it, talk to Steve Fain, talk to myself, Matt Drobnik, Justin Fry. Those are some of the key uh, leaders in that movement. Tomorrow is Labor Day, and it is also pickleball day. And this is highly, highly important. Um, At Lakeshore Park, 7 to 9, if you don't know what the obsession is and you think it's a cult, 
It's not a cult. It's a game we'd love for you to play. We'll teach you how to play. Um, join us 7 to 9 is the time frame at Lakeshore Park. And uh, you can sign up in the app so we kind of have an idea of who's coming. If not, just show up at 7 o'clock. If you've never done this before, you don't have paddles, you don't have stuff, just come. Ready to play, ready to, to learn a game, and ready to just hang out with church family together. Um, that's really the goal, is not that we all get really good at pickleball, although some of us are, not us, sorry, some of them are, but so that we can uh, build community together and just be together, build relationships. Um, so we'd love to have you there. Our next men's uh, breakfast is September 30th, so you guys can go ahead and have that date. Um, I also want to um, want you guys to share this date, everybody. Um, save the date of November the 4th. Uh, we are going to have a Saturday prayer conference here with um, a guest speaker, Al Whittinghill, is going to come and join us to lead us in prayer, have some teaching in prayer, and also have some just time of concentrated prayer. We'd love for you to save that date, to make that a priority in your calendar. We want to have people here. We're going to have some, some initiatives that are building up towards that and some initiatives following up from that as we seek this fall to go deeper in prayer as a church family together. But that's a key weekend for us. So please go ahead and save that date. Um, turn with me to John 3. And we'll open the word together. Last week I was here and um, shared, shared with you that after a few months, this was the end of our Proverbs series. And uh, we're starting something new. And the question is, why do you start a new series on Labor Day? And the answer is because months make sense to me. And it made sense to finish at the end of August and start at the beginning of September. But what's interesting is just how God ordained the circumstances of last Sunday to say we needed to finish the book of Proverbs by really examining our own eternity, by really asking the questions of life and death. And it was such a fitting end to the search for wisdom through the book of Proverbs. And now we're going to spend three months seeking to encounter God by examining stories of those that encountered him face to face. And we're going to look at God in, in as complete of a way as we can throughout the course of this three months, recognizing God is complex. He is three, but he is one. There is inherent complexity to that in the midst of this incredible simplicity of how we live in relationship to him and relate to him. And so we're going to look at how uh, certain uh, figures in Scripture encountered Jesus face-to-face -face this month. And next month we'll look at God the Father and his face-to-face interactions, his direct speaking to people in um, the Old Covenant Scriptures. And then we'll also, in November, be looking at how the Spirit of God comes. And the Spirit speaks and interacts with people. So we'll interact with all three persons of the Trinity over the next three months, uh, jump around to various different Scriptures. But today we'll be in John 3. And you know, it's become popular in Christian settings to speak negatively over the last maybe 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, to speak negatively about religion and to say that what we're really after in following Jesus is not religion, but rather relationship. You've, you've heard this before. I want Jesus, but I don't want religion because Jesus is better than religion. I want relationship with Jesus, but I'm not looking for religion. 
and maybe, maybe some of you have embraced that and, and, and like that language. I think it's really helpful in a lot of ways to take off some of the trappings of, of tradition and, and the religious mindset. But then at the end of the day, some of the people outside the church look at that and they're like, what in the world are you guys talking about? Because everybody outside knows that Christianity is a religion. And so they're like, what are you guys talking about when you say you want Jesus over religion, you want relationship over religion? It sounds, uh, it sounds disingenuous to those outside. But there is a really key point that we emphasize when we talk about the negatives of religion and the positives of following Jesus in a relational context. It doesn't mean that all religion is a bad thing. In fact, this is something that I think is an important point. The world is a better place. Society is a better place because of the movement of Christianity. Because of some of the religious aspects of the move of Jesus' followers and the movement throughout the last 2,000 years, much of human society is better because of it. And so we can't say all religion is negative because look at what happens when Jesus' followers organize, transform communities, form communities of of like-minded people and invest in a local community. It has changed society for the last 2,000 years. And you think, well, society's really bad. Why are we talking about Christianity's positive impact? But but let's think about it 2,000 years. Let's think about where society was 2,000 years ago and the movement of Christ and how it has positively shaped, how the impacts have been positive for minorities, for women, for children, for human rights in general, for those living in poverty. The religious aspects of Christianity, the movement of Christianity has been a net positive. And now we're Society starting to move away from that and away from the positive impacts that have come because of that. But so much of what we see in human society today, in Western society in particular, was shaped by Jesus' followers. Nobody believed that all men were created equal until that idea came from every human being being created in the image of God. So there are positive aspects of a religious movement within a nation and within a society. But there's some negatives too. And we need to talk about those. What we have today is a man who thinks he has all the answers. A man who comes at Jesus with a religious mindset. And he's coming to Jesus in fairness because he's starting to recognize there may be holes Maybe there's holes in what I'm thinking, and maybe somebody else has answers that I don't have. The man is described as a leader of the people, a teacher of the people, even a ruler of the people. But this man comes with what I will call today a religious mindset, and that's what we're worried about. That's what we as Jesus followers need to be wary of, is what is a religious mindset, and how does a religious mindset affect one's encounters with God, because that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to, here's what we're doing. Here's the whole goal here. We are trying to be outsiders in a conversation. We're the, the third party observing God himself interact with a person, and we're trying to see that God has answers for us in the answers he gives to these other people. And so when God is face to face with this religious scholar today, There are things that he is addressing in the life, in the heart, in the mind of the religious scholar that also answer our questions. 
that provide application points for us too. And so we're, we're going to sit back and we're going to try to engage. And we're going to see how, how the questions that Jesus is answering are not just for him, but for us. And what's funny is you'll see the guy's not really asking questions. The guy comes to Jesus, makes a statement, and Jesus takes off from there. And that's emblematic of the way conversations with, with God should go, by the way. Sometimes we come with our preconceived notions, our ideas of this is what we really, I need these answers, Jesus. And sometimes Jesus wants to take us in a totally different direction than what our expectations are. But here's the religious mindset, a simple definition that I'll give you. A religious mindset is built off of right belief leading to right behavior. And let's not fool ourselves. Our behaviors come out of our beliefs. There's, there's, a, there's a real truth to that. That when your beliefs are right, your behaviors tend to fall in line with your beliefs. Now, there's, there's, there's exceptions to that because we might believe right things and still act wrongly. We know that as Christians, we still struggle with sin that entangles us and causes us to behave in ways that are different from the way we believe. But the religious mindset, as it's brought to Jesus today, is focused on believing the right things and behaving the right way. It's knowledge-based and action-based. I please God by my behavior. I connect with God by my actions. I know I am safe in my relationship to God because I believe the right things and I behave the right way. So that's this religious mindset that I believe is true of the man, Nicodemus is his name, that encounters Jesus in John 3. And I think it's true of many, but not all, within the, within the movement of, of Judaism that, that Nicodemus was a part in first century Judaism. And I think it's true of many 21st century Christians as well. That my relationship with God is based off of thinking the right way and doing the right thing. And that's a limited connection point with Jesus. And that's what we're going to see. The mindset that says, I believe, therefore I behave. Or I behave, therefore I belong. Is limited in its effectiveness. And is limited in its ability to really connect with who Jesus is. So let's go deeper into the passage. We'll start in John 3, verses 1 through 2. Today, we're going to go through 21 verses of John 3. This is a story of Jesus' interaction with this man named Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle it in three chunks. We'll see who, G, who Nicodemus is in the first couple verses. Then we'll go into Jesus' main point and then Jesus' explanation of his main point. Three parts, but first, verses 1 and 2, simply. Who is Nicodemus? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There it is. There's simply, that's our introduction. So we've got to stop there, and we've got to kind of pick apart what's going on here in the background. Nicodemus is first identified as a man of the Pharisees. He is a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a specific ideological movement, a theological movement movement within first century Judaism. The Pharisees were those that were most committed to the law, to the letter of the law. 
In fact, the Pharisees were so committed to the law that they actually connected dots in laws that weren't explicitly stated in the Old Covenant scriptures, and they actually added more because they say, if I'm going to observe, the, if I'm going to God's law, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Pharisees had to take that and say, how specifically can I remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? And so their, their application of that was to put all these restrictions on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath, how long you could walk, how, how many hours you could be um, uh, out doing any sort of activity, those sort of things. So they added more to it to be ultra clear, ultra specific, and ultimately so that they could behave as well as humanly possible because the connection to God was dependent on their behavior. Because of what they believed about God, about his law, and their relationship to him, they had to behave in a certain way in order to maintain that relationship. Nicodemus, though, was not just a Pharisee. He was, as verse 1 says, a ruler of the Jews. Well, what does that mean? That's another group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, you see that later on in the Gospels. The Sanhedrin comes into play in a really important way around Jesus' death. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Jewish elders. See, here's, here's the reality. The political situation of Israel was weird in those days. And as you read the Gospels, there's so much going on in the background and all these groups that show up and you think, how does this have to do with anything going on with Jesus? Here's the context. Rome was in charge, and when Rome was in charge, Rome was really, really in charge, and they had soldiers stationed all throughout the Israel that Jesus lived in of the day, the Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time, Jerusalem where Jesus spent some of his time, all of those areas were full of Roman soldiers, and Rome was ultimately in control, but Rome had set up different leaders over different provinces. And in Israel, they had set up Herod, who was sort of related to the Jews in a weird way. He was sort of a cousin of Jews. He was sort of partially Jewish. So they set him up as a Jewish king. So Herod had some authority under Caesar. But then ultimately, because Herod wasn't a full Jew, in order to appease the Jews, what Caesar did is he allowed them to rule themselves with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a group of Jewish elders that served under Herod and under Caesar to, to pass laws and to govern the people of Israel in day-to-day -day functions until something got out of line and Herod had to step in with the Roman army or Caesar had to step in. Sanhedrin couldn't tell the soldiers what to do. Herod did. But the Sanhedrin could pass laws and certain punishments and, and certain requirements over Jewish life in the area. So that's why Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's still under Herod, and he's, he's still under Caesar, okay? But Nicodemus was a leader, respected, authority, power. But verse 2 says he comes at night. Why did he come at night? Is it because of the secrecy? Is it because he's embarrassed of what people might think? Is it because he's embarrassed that he might lose his influence? He might lose his standing as a member of the Sanhedrin if he actually, if people know that he's really hearing out this, this radical new teacher that's sort of pushing the Pharisees' buttons and really angering them in a lot of ways? Is, is Nicodemus afraid 
of what people are going to say about him if they find out he's interested in this guy. Because the public, the official public position of the Pharisees on Jesus is, this is not a guy to follow. This is a troublemaker. He's messing up our control over the Jewish community. Because we're the ones that control the Jewish community, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, but also the Sadducees who also have some members of the Sanhedrin. That's a different group of Jews for another day. But Nicodemus is representing these leadership groups that are trying to maintain control. Nicodemus comes at night, not during the day. When it says, by the way, in 3-2, that Nicodemus comes at night, he didn't come for dinner. If he came for dinner, John would say he came for dinner. If he came for dinner, he'd come during the daytime and have a dinner and stay into the nighttime. This is somebody who came at night, means it's dark outside. The evening meal has already been served. And now, late into the evening, Nicodemus is coming to have a conversation. Is it sort of a backdoor negotiation between this political group of leaders that want to maintain control and this troublemaking rabbi? Maybe the other Sanhedrin knew that Nicodemus was there and they had commissioned him to be their spokesperson. That's possible. We don't know. Typically, this verse gets interpreted as Nicodemus was there in secrecy. He didn't want others to know that he was interested in the questions he was asking. But we don't actually know all of the motivations. We just know what Nicodemus says and what Jesus says. And we know that Jesus really stumps him. We know that Nicodemus has a plan for the, the meeting, and Jesus derails it and goes his own direction. So whether it was a secret backdoor um, negotiation between the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees and Jesus, or whether Nicodemus was coming with none of his friends, having any clue what he was doing, we don't know. But what we know is a man with a behavior-based religious mindset was coming to Jesus, the Son of God, and wanted to hear from him. Because he said, Rabbi, number one, he affirms Jesus' role as a teacher. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs. Do these signs. No, again, we have a religious person that's focused on actions. There are different points in Jesus' ministry where his teaching is what intrigues people. But Nicodemus, when he is entering into this conversation, he's thinking about actions, not what Jesus is teaching he says you're a teacher that comes from God but what really fascinates him what really turns the corner for him what really makes him think there's something here are the actions this is woven into his view of the world Jesus you're doing things that only God can do which means you've come from God which means God is with you doesn't mean you're God he doesn't say that he says it's clear that you've come from God it's clear that God is with you Notice that Nicodemus um, phrases everything in first-person plural. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. So Nicodemus is likely having conversations, whether the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin know he's there or not. He's had these conversations with other people among the leadership class of Jews. There's other people that are asking these same questions. He's not the only one. And he's saying, there's something here. There's something I've got to discover I've got to figure out. But Jesus makes a point, not in response to a question, but in response to Nicodemus' statement. He doesn't, Nicodemus doesn't ask a question 
it's like he doesn't know. This is what I think. I think Nicodemus is there. He's uncomfortable. He's ready to have a conversation, a philosophical debate, a theological debate, but he doesn't know exactly how to start it. So he tries to affirm Jesus in one way. Rabbi, you are a teacher. You've come from God. You do these great signs. Clearly, God is with you. We know this. And he's just trying to step a toe in to a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus goes from zero to 60 in one sentence. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's radically confrontational. Radically confrontational. We're used to it, right? If you've grown up in the church, you know, you've heard, you must be born again. We know this. We know, most of us know the story of Nicodemus because most of us know John 3.16. We know that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We know that we have to believe in him so that we can have eternal life and not perish. We know these things. But don't miss the confrontation in Jesus' voice and in Jesus' direct words to this religious man. What did Nicodemus believe? He believed he was the cream of the crop. He believed that he was a ruler of the Jews, of Pharisees. He was a part of the most dedicated, most rigorously obedient, law-abiding group of Jews. And then, as a part of that law-abiding group of Jews, the Pharisees, he was appointed, promoted into the ruling class. Just a few guys that were able to rule all over, over all of Jewish life and Jewish faith and religion. He was the cream of the crop. And Jesus starts out, and don't miss what Jesus is saying. Jesus starts out, unless you're born again, you're going to hell. That's what he says. Now, what was Nicodemus's concept of heaven, hell, and eternity? It was a little different than what we have with the New Testament Christian mindset. But what he says in a confrontational way, and what Nicodemus hears in sentence number one, you must be born again, or you will not enter into God's eternal kingdom. And Nicodemus believed every faithful Jew was entering into God's eternal kingdom. Nicodemus believed you had to be really, really bad to not enter into God's eternal kingdom if you were a Jew. Now, everybody else, they got problems. But the Jews, the faithful Jews, they were well on their way to God's eternal kingdom. So Jesus comes out and says, you must be born again. Good Jews don't enter Yahweh's kingdom. And Nicodemus says, that doesn't make sense. But notice Nicodemus's action. Actually, we'll just read 4 through 13 right here. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus cuts straight to his main point. You must be born again. And Jesus says, I don't get it. Or Nicodemus says, I don't get it. Nicodemus is not, he comes in, and again, I'm just convinced that Nicodemus comes in for a philosophical, theological conversation, and Jesus' words get him into this rut. And and Nicodemus' response is no longer philosophical and theological, but it's really physical and practical. Tell me about this whole born-again thing, Jesus. Tell me about the womb. Tell me about how this works. And what's confusing about this is we don't really know where Nicodemus's head is. It could be a little bit of a taunt. It could be him kind of making fun of Jesus a little bit. It, that would be the Pharisee playbook. The Pharisees were trained in rhetoric. The Pharisees were trained to debate. The Pharisees were trained to turn one's words against them. And so for Nicodemus to come at Jesus with this point of, well, being born again doesn't make sense. Can I climb into a room? It could be an attempt to reduce Jesus' words to absurdity and say, Jesus, your, your point doesn't make sense. But if that is his attempt, it falls completely flat before the Son of God because Jesus is not worried about rhetorical technique in this conversation. Jesus is worried about getting a point across, and it's very, very clear. Nicodemus doesn't talk about the theological point that Jesus has made. This is where I just feel like there's some sort of diversion in Jesus's mind, because, or in Nicodemus's mind. Sorry, I'm getting those, I'm trading names too quickly in my head. Jesus confronts Nicodemus very, very directly and practically. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus doesn't debate righteousness, purity, obedience of the law. Nicodemus gets stuck where Jesus left him on born again. If you were thinking your entire life that you were doing the right thing on the right path, exactly what you needed to do in order to enter into an eternal kingdom that was prepared specifically for you and your, and, and your people, your ethnic group as Jews were in the center of God's plan and you were told your whole life this is what you need to do to be in the center of God's pleasure and enter into his kingdom and then all of a sudden someone says you're not going to enter the kingdom wouldn't that be a big theological point that you'd want to debate but Nicodemus responds with Jesus the whole born again thing sounds kind of silly actually See, we know, here's here's the thing that we know, okay? We know that Nicodemus is there at the very end of Jesus' life. Nicodemus is with another guy who's one of the religious elites, Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus assists Joseph of Arimathea in securing the body of Jesus and placing the body of Jesus into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So Nicodemus, we believe, and I think this is true, I think there is reason to believe that Nicodemus follows Jesus in the end. I think Nicodemus 
understand, and maybe it's, it's just on the last day, but at some point Nicodemus begins to follow and understand what Jesus is saying. But let's not read too much of that into this and give Nicodemus all this credit and say he's this really peaceful, searching, seeking, well-meaning guy in this conversation. He is under the cover of night. He is a member of a class of people that are opposed to Jesus that have been trying to trap and trick Jesus all the way through this. And his words can easily be interpreted as laying traps for Jesus. He's not engaging in good faith debate in much of this conversation. He's stuck. And sometimes because we believe that that Nicodemus eventually follows Jesus, sometimes we give him the benefit of the doubt and say, he's just so concerned about wanting to follow, he wants to follow Jesus so bad, he's trying to figure out how he can climb back into his mother's womb. I don't believe that's a practical consideration in Nicodemus' head. I think it's a disrespectful way of trying to make Jesus' points and arguments sound absurd. I think it's a way of Nicodemus trying to reclaim the intellectual, philosophical high ground from somebody who just told him he's going to hell. Nicodemus is trying to get control back of the conversation by making Jesus' words look foolish. So So Jesus says, you're so focused on the physical realities, you're focused on re- on birth and wombs and the weirdness of, of the point. Jesus says you're missing the point. You're talking about physical realities and I'm talking about spiritual realities. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. This is verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes it is, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's so interesting to get to take a series like this and to, to piece different things together from different parts of Scripture, okay? So actually last week, I made a last-minute, unplanned divergence to go from, from the book of Proverbs into John 4. And all of a sudden, John, last week, I was talking about John 4 and the woman at the well, where Jesus says to the woman at the well, I will give you living water because so much of Proverbs talks about this living water imagery. It's there in the Old Covenant. And what we saw from John 4 last week is that this idea of Jesus bringing living water didn't start when Jesus was on the earth as a human. There was Old Covenant allusions to this idea. So here's why Jesus is so direct with Nicodemus. He says, are you really a teacher of Israel and you don't get it? And you're thinking, what did, what did Nicodemus not get? Because I didn't get it either. I don't know the point that Jesus is trying to make with born again spirit. We, we only know because we've grown up in churches that have used this Christianese language about being born again, and so we kind of get it. But it doesn't make sense. But yeah, he's so hard on, G, on Nicodemus. So in a, in a few weeks, I'm going to open up the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel speaks of the movement of God and regeneration in a predictive form and the illustrations of regeneration and new life in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, which the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, should know, are all about water, wind, and spirit. Jesus doesn't make it up. He's not just going on the fly and coming up with illustrations on the fly. 
Jesus is interpreting Old Testament imagery and scriptures to the teacher of the people that should know these things. Nicodemus should be predicting that the new covenant would mean new birth and new birth through wind and water and the spirit because that's what Ezekiel told Israel would happen. And if somebody was truly a teacher of the law that was seeking to understand the narrative of Scripture and see what, how God would save his people, then when somebody came to them and said, you've got to be born again of the Spirit, they would get it and they would think of, of Ezekiel. And they would think of the waters flowing through the wasteland of Ezekiel as God's movement and the falling of the Spirit onto God's people. They would think of the wind that Elijah encounters and Ezekiel encounters as the Spirit of God flowing and bringing life to his people. Nicodemus had spent his entire life in the book. And just because we don't get that illusion when we read it, doesn't mean that Ezekiel sh or that Nicodemus should have. He spent his life in the Old Covenant Scriptures. He knew Ezekiel. He could have quoted Ezekiel to Jesus. He should have seen the point that Jesus was trying to make. But here's the other confrontational thing that Jesus is saying. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some people interpret that to be the born of water is referring to um, the natural birth, the, the physical birth. And born of the spirit is the being born again. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing because in the context of John 3, the story that John is telling here is the very next uh, person that he talks about is the person who is baptizing with water. John the Baptist. And I believe that what Jesus is doing in the context of his ministry, stepping into this context in which Jesus is telling people, Jesus is telling people you must be born again, in the context where John is telling people you must repent. And repentance means baptism with water. So here's the other thing. This is the confrontational thing that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, the religious scholar who has everything figured out in his head, and Jesus is throwing off all of his points. He's told him in verse 3, you must be born again because you can't enter God's eternal kingdom without it. Now he's telling him, you have to repent. When he brings up being born again of water and the Spirit, he's making an allusion to John's ministry and John's gospel of repentance and John's baptism of calling the people of Israel to repent. So now he has told Nicodemus, you're not good enough. You're not a good enough Jew to enter the kingdom. And now he's told Nicodemus, there are things in your life, in your actions, in your beliefs, in your behaviors that you have to repent of. So that's why we step in this, okay? Imagine if you had the opportunity that Nicodemus had where you could actually go visit Jesus by night in secrecy and you could think about it for days and you could reflect on your own conversation and what is it? I, I, hope, I hope you've had that thought where you've reflected, if I could ask Jesus anything, if I could sit face to face with Jesus, what would I ask, what would I say? Well, here, here's somebody that's done it. And the great thing for us is we don't have to be the one that is so uncomfortably confronted. Because I can tell you the truth. If it was one of us 
before we started to follow Jesus, before we believed and were born again, it would be just as uncomfortable and probably worse and probably more confrontational. And so I, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't sit face to face with Jesus and have my mind blown where he told me directly, yeah, you're going to hell, you have to repent, you've missed everything, your whole life's work. It was the Spirit of God that enlivened my heart as I heard and understood the gospel because the face-to-face -face confrontation with Jesus, this was hard for Nicodemus. This was not the picture that gets painted of a, of a skeptic, of a searcher, who is seeking God and really desperately wants to know, this is somebody that is bringing his pride into the table with Jesus and saying, I haven't decided yet if, if you have anything good to say to me. And Jesus is verbally hitting him in the face with the truth of who he is. So Nicodemus' response in 3.9, how can these things be? I think this is the point of searching this is the point of openness. This is where he starts to open up. When he says, how can these things be? Another way to reword that, that response to that question is, how could we have gotten it so wrong? Because in a moment now, he recognizes good Jews don't enter the kingdom by, by, obeying, by obeying the law. And good Jews don't get to bypass repentance. Good Jews have to be born again too. So everything in his theology and his philosophy of life and his view of the old covenant scriptures is, is all of a sudden being shattered. What Jesus said about Nicodemus' movement, they search the scriptures because they think in the scriptures they find life, but they testify about me. Jesus is better than the scriptures because the scriptures have no application point without Jesus. The scriptures are a road that takes us to the Son. And that's where we find life. Nicodemus says, how can I be so wrong? What do I need to repent of? Matthew 5.20, when Jesus is talking about the need for repentance and how to enter the kingdom, uh, in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Pharisees don't enter the kingdom of heaven. Not on the basis of the righteousness. The Pharisees, who are the most righteous people that anybody in that, in that society knew, the most obedient, the most law-abiding, they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven because they're not following Jesus into the kingdom of heaven. They're following words into the kingdom of heaven. This is where the religious mindset is so dangerous even for us and even for today. Are we following Jesus or are we following a set of beliefs and behaviors? Are we following the way of a Savior who guides us and leads us and, and shows us himself through the scriptures? Or are we just, in sort of a passive way, in sort of an arm's length way, trying to find the truth from a book, trying to find practical application points, things to do without really connecting with the one who is revealed here? Jesus' main point in all of this is you have to be born again because you have things that you need to be washed clean of by repenting of your sin and by being born again by the Spirit. In verse 11, Jesus says, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I ask the question of you to reflect on, 
who is the we that Nicodemus is speaking of in John 3, 2? I think he's probably speaking on behalf of other Pharisees or Sanhedrin. Who is the we that Jesus is speaking on behalf of in 3.11? I believe that's the Spirit of God. Because Jesus isn't coming by himself to bear testimony of what he has seen. Jesus is coming in the power of the Spirit and, and utilizing in perfect connection with the Father through the presence of the Spirit with him, all three persons of the Trinity working together to accomplish a common mission of saving Nicodemus. Saving people like Nicodemus. And of leaving a trail for us to follow to find the same truth in the same person, in the same confronting encounter with Jesus. When Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, in verse 10, it's not an affirmation. It's, it's a confrontation again. It's sarcasm. You know, he was, Nicodemus was trying to make the born-again illustration look look foolish and Jesus is saying man how do you not get it you're the teacher of Israel and you've never read Ezekiel and you don't understand that this was patterned there this is Jesus and the spirit in perfect communion saying to Nicodemus I want to take you farther than you're ready to go but you've got to leave some things behind and so brothers and sisters this is for us now as we're about to go into the the, the section of scripture that gives us the clearest gospel verse that we all know and love, the most popular verse in the Bible, it's here, and we're about to read it. But before we get there, Jesus is telling us there's things you've got to leave behind and give up on before you get there. Because you're broken. You're dead. You're in need of repentance. And Nicodemus has to, has to lay off the trappings of the religious mindset and say, my actions aren't going to carry me far enough. My beliefs aren't going to carry me far enough. My intellect, my philosophy, my education, none of that is going to get me far enough to actually enter into the kingdom of Jesus. And if it wasn't abundantly clear, it gets clearer. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Let me tell you what that says. That says, Nicodemus, you're not just wrong. You're sick. And the diagnosis is terminal. And you can't help yourself. Numbers 21, we have this story. It's an incredible story. I invite you, go back this week. Read the story in Numbers 21. The people of God, the people of Israel, are disobedient to God. So God sends his judgment. God sends his judgment in the form of these poisonous snakes, fiery serpents, Scripture calls them. And their bite is deadly. No one survives. Whether it's an immediate death or a progressive illness that causes great torment, we, can, we actually see it's more progressive than immediate because the people that are suffering from the bites there's time where they recognize, this was the snake that bit me. I'm in agony. I'm in pain. Maybe it's a fiery serpent because it causes an extreme fever. We don't know. But these serpents were sent as judgment from God on the disobedience of God's people. And what was the solution? It was a snake that Moses formed under God's instruction. And he put it on a stick. And he told the people, look at it. And they said, Moses, nobody has a medical degree, but that doesn't make sense. That's not medicine. That's not treatment. And Moses says, trust me, God said, look at it. 
Look at the fake snake on a, on a stick. That'll heal you. And it did. And Jesus said there's a theological point there for repentance and new life in Christ that nobody saw in the first reading of Numbers 21. Because just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Another point of confrontation. You're not just wrong, Nicodemus. You're sick and you're almost dead in your sickness. And you've got to act now. Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The snakes were sent in the wilderness as judgment. Jesus was sent as mercy, as life, as restoration, as a way of removing the judgment, removing the condemnation. And if you were in God's seat and you saw rebellious people, you would probably move towards justice and move towards judgment. But God in his goodness, in his perfect justice and his perfect love, moves towards mercy, towards uh, reconciliation with his people. So Jesus was not, the scripture says, Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Like the snake was not an actual snake. It looked like a snake, but it wasn't a snake. The snake of redemption in the wilderness was not a snake of, of punishment and poison, but rather in the likeness of, of the snake, so that they could actually look to not the snake, but God as their Savior. So Jesus came, and he looked like he was wearing sinful flesh, but he wasn't. He was not a sinner in his flesh. He was wearing physical flesh, but not sinful flesh. And he came so that those that were entrapped in sinful flesh would have new life through him. And here it is, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So what do we do with this, okay? What's the behavioral emphasis here? Because we're saying that Jesus is confronting somebody that's coming from a religious mindset that's obsessed with behavior. Verse 20. Those who do wickedness hate the light. Those, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is right comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Jesus is coming back to this religious mindset. And he's equating this religious mindset with wickedness. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you think you're doing the right thing because you think you will find life in the book without the sun. And so what you're ultimately doing, though, here's what the religious mindset does. The religious mindset says, how do I relate to God? How do I connect with God? How do I get what I believe and how I act in line so that I can actually rightly connect with God? And that whole time, there's a lot of I in that. I'm at the center. My beliefs, my decisions, my actions, my obedience, my behavior. And that's where Nicodemus enters into the conversation. Jesus, you have something to show us. You've come from God. But Nicodemus isn't there because he wants Jesus. He's trying to get something out of Jesus. 
He's not giving himself to Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to give something to him. And so the religious mindset is a mindset that keeps self at the center. And it says, if I believe the right things, if I behave the right way, then maybe I'll find belonging. But see, there's a way to get out, out of balance in both extremes here. We're caught. We're going to wrap this up in this way. Because I entered into the conversation today saying, there's a lot of good in this mindset that says, I don't want to, to just follow a religion. I want to follow Jesus. There's beauty in that. There's some truth in that. There's some danger over here too in I've got to do this religious stuff to please God. But did you know, brothers and sisters, there's danger over here too. Because this mindset over here that says it's not about what I do, it's just about loving Jesus and being in relationship. God doesn't care what I do now because I'm saved and I'm loved by him. And so I'm just going to live the way I want to live still. I'm going to come up with my own way of life but I'm going to get really emotionally excited about Jesus and I'm going to love Jesus and say, I like Jesus, but not the church. I like Jesus, but not religion. I like Jesus' love and mercy, but not his law and justice. And you can fall off the cliff in either direction. In this direction, it's legalism and we know how you fall off that cliff. You never actually give your life to Jesus because you think you're perfect and you think you don't need it. And over here, you never actually give your life to Jesus either. Because you think that your sin doesn't matter. And you think that if you just have warm feelings, and you think that if you just find acceptance somewhere, that's all that matters. And the truth of the way of Jesus is not either extreme. The truth of the way of, the, of Jesus is that what we believe matters, our belonging matters, and our behavior does actually matter. But things have to come in the right progression. Religion says... I behave, therefore I belong. My behavior is based on right belief, and there I belong. But the way of Jesus says, believe in me, and you belong. And as you live in that belonging, you will become something different. And the journey of the way of Jesus is a journey of becoming. It's a journey in which there is a radical moment of new salvation in which the old is gone, the new has come in a moment. We, we, we believe that. We confess that to be theologically true. But after that moment of new creation in Christ where you believe for the first time, where you become something new and you belong to Jesus forever, it still feels like you're still on a journey. And it's because you are. Because the way of Jesus is a journey not just in that one moment of becoming a new creation in Christ but of continually becoming who you already are. That's the way of Jesus. The journey of becoming who he has already recreated you to be in him. It engages with what we believe. It engages with who we become. It engages in a new radical belonging because every human heart wants to belong somewhere. And it ultimately totally transforms the way we act. It transforms our behaviors because we're becoming somebody different. So as I call the band up to close us today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us to this thought. If we believe in Jesus, and we belong by the new birth, and we are becoming somebody who loves the light and is motivated towards obedience, 
then what is our next step of following Jesus deeper in this moment? Because here we are gathered with a room of insiders. We're kind of the religious insiders of our day. We're the church folk. And so we're the ones that are a lot more similar to Nicodemus and some of the other people that were encountered Jesus in the weeks ahead. And so we, we get some of the insider language. We've heard that we should be born again. Most of us have repented of our sins and been born again in Jesus. But then what is this message for? It's so that we can actually, again, be confronted with our sin and fall in love in a deeper way with Jesus. Again. And it's so that we can be radically motivated that there is a, a world out there that, that may think like Nicodemus thinks. Well, if I do the right things, then one day there will be this great scale and the good will outweigh the bad and that's going to help me enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus would say to that person, no. No, that's not it. You don't enter into the kingdom of heaven by just acting right and controlling your behaviors. You enter through repentance and through me. There's another group of people out there that think because they have some idea of who God is or who Jesus is, it's enough. Because I know how to say the name. I know how to say a prayer in his name. But I don't have a deep relationship with him. I don't have a deep connection with him. And he certainly hasn't changed my actions. So whatever type of person we're dealing with, the need is the same. It's, it's Jesus. And many of us, and many of them, both the religious, religious elite like us and the lost and the dying world. We want to control our conversations. We want to have some level of control in our relationship with Jesus. But as we step into this moment of reflection and as we sing this song together, I'm going to challenge you that Jesus doesn't let you control your conversations with him. He certainly didn't with Nicodemus. Whatever plan Nicodemus had, we, we'll never know. Because Jesus went in a totally different direction than Nicodemus was planning on going. And if you give your life to Christ, he's going to take you in a different direction. And if you give your life to Christ to be used for the sake of others, he's going to take you into conversations that you don't expect, opportunities that you don't expect, to love people with the truth of who Jesus is. That you must be born again and that they must be born again. And that there is new life and new belonging through his name. If any of you are pausing because you're too lost, you're too far, your sin is too dark, the reminder is nothing. Nothing is too sinful. Nothing is too dark for the light of Christ to not shine in and bring new life. We enter that light confessing our sins, receiving Jesus, and saying, Jesus, lead me into newness of life. And the Spirit of God will come. He'll empower you. He'll regenerate you, rebirth you is the little literal word to newness in Christ. Let's stand. We'll sing together. And this song is a prayer. God, guide me when I don't know where to go.